Hey, Mark. Joe, how are you? I have a question for you. That's That comes as a huge surprise. What form of transportation terrifies you the most? Form of transportation terrifies me the most. <laughs> Do any forms of transportation terrify me? I like roller coasters. Oh, okay. Well, then. You know. Yeah. Cars should terrify me. Yeah, statistically. But they don't. And I like airplanes. I'm going to have to go with a barrel over the Niagara Falls. That's that's pretty terrifying. Okay, good job. <laughs> and you? See, we didn't talk about the weather. <laughs> no, not yet anyway. Uh, but yeah, no, the most terrifying conveyance for you. I think a hot air balloon. Hmm. That just sounds like a bad idea to me. Have you ever been in one? I have never been in one. It looks really cool. But yeah, statistically, it doesn't look so good. Well, we're going to have to do a podcast from a hot air balloon then one day. <laughs> just to hear, see my voice pitched an octave higher the whole time in terror. Yeah. Exactly. Now, should we pose this question? To our guest? Yes, to our guest. I think so. Tim Blackmore, welcome. Hello, hello. What terrifies you in terms of transportation? Well, spacecraft? That's why I had this as a question, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that would be a good answer. <laughs> yeah. Anything in space. Yeah, yeah, space is pretty hostile. Do you guys think astronauts are terrified? When they first go up in uh, one of those things? Not from what I understand. I mean, my, my understanding is that basically their heart rates are up. Some of them. Some, not at all. I mean, some have a resting heart rate on the launch pad and, and during launch. It's like that seat of the right stuff where they have to wake up. It's Gus Grissom, right? They have to wake him up because he's asleep during the... <laughs> right before the launch. Yeah. <laughs> you have to wake him up. Yeah. I, I had heard... And, uh, and I hope that no astronauts are listening to this, or we may never be able to get an astronaut on the podcast. But I had heard that one of the decisions, at least early on, when they were choosing astronauts, was that they want someone who's, um, who's good mechanically and smart, but with not too much imagination. <laughs> yeah. I think if you're going to be a test pilot in general, you better believe in your own skills. I mean, you better have a really core sense that you can overcome the problems you're going to face. And so there's a great deal of solid, when you do meet pilots, they seem like very calm dudes or people. I've only ever met one. I met uh, Chris Hadfield at the CBC. He'd just come out of the elevator and he looked lost. And I was going to, <laughs> I, was, I was coming up to him to say, you know, can I help you? Is there someplace you and I was going to make some silly joke about being lost in space <laughs> and uh, fortunately someone got to him in time <laughs> before I could do that too bad but speaking of lost listeners may be lost now wondering who the heck it is that we are talking to I mean we know that it's Tim Blackmore yeah but what do we know about him even he doesn't know <laughs> well this is the point where we ask you to introduce yourself Tim oh I see okay on this podcast we don't do it for you oh excellent wonderful I've been I've been trying to do this my whole life. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm a professor at the, in the School of Information and Media Studies at the University of Western Ontario. That's one of the things I do. Long-time professor, <laughs> no-time listener. Um, I was a graphic designer a long, long time ago when I was in my early 20s, I guess, and late teens. And at the time, we did everything by hand. There were really no computers. This was before the Mac or before the Apple. And I love graphics. And uh, But in the end, I got out of that world. And I decided as I did exit that world that it was time 
to go to art school at least a little bit. And so I started going to art school at night while I was doing other things. That was good. And I was always been interested in science fiction. I love science fiction, really, of all kinds, but specific, mostly reading. But at the time, in the 70s, when I was a teen and in the 80s, all science fiction film was just bad. I mean, Wait, was, sorry. Which decade are we talking about? In the last century, about 50 or 60 years <laughs> ago. So the 1970s, in the late 70s and the early 80s. Okay, we're going to have to come back to that. Keep going. Okay. The thing about science fiction film is that it just was it was just terrible and it looked terrible and it, it was written terribly and it had terrible people in it. And you just sort of knew when you went to see a science fiction film that it was just going to be awful. And there were about three or four maybe well-made science fiction films that looked beautiful and were well-written and had been directed well. And, and they didn't look like because people always, when you said at the time, you know, I read science fiction, they were like, oh, like 1984, you'd be like, no. And how about Brave New World? It's like, oh, geez. Okay. Yeah, sure. Fine. Like, let me get out of here. Like, <laughs> you know, let me off this bus. So I don't have to have this discussion yet again uh, about what science fiction is. And because at the time it really was like when you met another science fiction reader, you were meeting somebody from a club. So that was sort of part of the attraction, I guess, of it. But anyway, so films like 2001, yeah, that's, which was made in... My, that's the first thing I thought of. Yeah, which was made it's, in 1968. Well, it was finished in 68, but they started in 66. Because it still looks great. It still looks beautiful. Yeah. And it still is. I mean, Trumbull, Douglas Trumbull, who did the, uh, who was the director of photography and also the technical, essentially, guy, um, became the, one of the technical wizards of Hollywood in the 80s. So it was very unusual to see well done science fiction film. How did I get onto this? I was in, okay, so I was interested in, in that. And so when I went to art school, I was doing a lot of drawings of spacecraft and, other things like that when <clears throat> we weren't doing other stuff that we were supposed to do. And eventually, after I'd been at art school uh, over the course of a series of years, at n going at night, so very slowly, but really having a chance to do the courses, put time into the courses. One of the courses I took was with an Estonian industrial designer named Velo Hubel. And Velo was this wonderful, just tremendous human being. He was this <laughs> bear of a man. And he, he had these crazy stories about he'd been picked up trying to escape Estonia because they were trying to get away from, well, they're trying to get away from the Russians <laughs> and then the Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, because eh, first they were flooded by one and then by the other. So he was picked up at the mouth of the harbor, leaving Estonia and uh, picked up by the Nazis, by the wolf pack. And they put him to work in the Berlin rail yards, servicing locomotives. And uh, so at night, during the day, they were guarded by Nazis because they had to keep the trains running, literally. And uh, at night, the Allies would come over and bomb them, and they'd run off into the, into the field so they didn't get killed by Allied bombs. <laughs> and then the Nazis would go out and round them up and bring them back to the rail yards in the day. So I met Velo, and uh, he was just this wonderful storyteller. And he was a very fluid, extremely intelligent designer. And I... My interest at the time in animation and industrial design specifically really sort of came to the fore. And I began to think seriously about leaving the university, which is where I'd been doing another degree, and going to art school to do industrial design and getting a job in film designing. So this is sort of where that's my uh, part of my other life. 
that's kind of, kind of enough. <laughs> but it's also fair to say that design features pretty heavily in your research too. Like you're True. a professor and your research is really about design as much as anything else. Yeah, that's true. I am interested in technology and the way technology is designed. And I'm also interested in two-dimensional design, what we would call two-dimensional design, which means posters and and uh, flags and things like that. And I did actually, Mark's right, I did just write a book about um, the design of military patches during World War II and sort of what, what had happened, why the basically the ascendancy of the swastika and what had been the German design program, uh, if there was such a thing. And it turned out there was. There really was a very focused German design program. And I was interested specifically in, well, who ran it? And uh, who who were the geniuses, basically, of this program? And there were real geniuses. And some of them, like the guy who designed the, the Volkswagen logo, uh, you know, he's paid 100 marks for that, 100 extra marks. That was it. <laughs> that was his gift, his gift to posterity. And he got to live, I guess. So that was one of your books, but you've written other books too, right? That's right. I, I wrote a book mm-hmm. about military technology called War X. That's a book where I I could see that my students, I teach a couple of courses on war and the way war is represented and the way we make propaganda. And the kind of propaganda I'm thinking of isn't your sort of typical... It doesn't look like a, a World War II poster. It would look like um, it's going to look like a TikTok video, or it's going to be it's going to be something that you really don't understand as being propaganda. It's going to be something like uh, I don't know a first-person shooter game or something like that, which is completely pretty much hides itself under the guise of being entertainment or some easily consumable sort of product that has chocolate covered all over it and you know it's just it's all sweet and you know bad for you but you don't know you know it's bad for you but you mm. don't know just how bad it's for you so like things like um the most overt propaganda apart from maverick okay um the second top gun film but is probably at the moment the um well the reacher series and movies mm-hmm. have been uh, that's the kind of propaganda i'm thinking of and also the uh, jack ryan stuff which has continued to uh, sort of be this ongoing thread. Also the Star Wars, the ongoing Star Wars universe, the Mandalorian, that's anything that has Grogu in it, that watch out, you know, watch your, watch your wallet because <laughs> somebody's coming for you. And that's the stuff I'm, you know, that I, when I focus on propaganda, people are like, oh, you must mean this. I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, if somebody takes out a page and, you know, puts a flag on a page, yeah, okay. You know, that's obvious. It's the stuff that you don't see coming. That The insidious propaganda. That's the best propaganda. Yeah. You know, integrated <laughs> propaganda. It's the real propaganda, the stuff yeah. that you don't actually know. Exactly. If somebody did analysis right now of the sound, for instance, that we're putting out, they'd find out that there are like three tones that are going into their brain that will reprogram and that kind of thing. <laughs> well, of course, this, this podcast is nothing but propaganda, but I, I'm right. not sure what it's propaganda for. We're still working on that. But- I just want to, okay, so I want to sum up. You're a, a professor. Yep. You're interested in design yep. and in science fiction. Yep. And uh, and you've written a couple of books, You're uh, which, uh, and you're interested in the design that came out of uh, the Nazis. You're interested in war. Yep. And is there anything that you would add to that, that, that you are? Um, no, I, that's pretty good, I think. I, I um, let me put... He's also an artist. I just I got to jump in with a story because Tim Tim one of the way that ways that Tim manages to get through long committee meetings, Mm. and I don't think I'm going to say anything that's going to get us fired is that he he has a sketchbook, 
And it's a delight whenever we're in person and I see that Tim is in the meeting, I'm like, I try to sit close as I can so I can actually see what's happening in the sketchbook as the insanity ensues. <laughs> okay, Mark, you've got to get your hands on some of this and you've got to put it up in the website so that people can but see. Maybe he can send, scan us a couple sure. pieces. Sure, yeah. I can send you. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Mark. That's so, that's so kind. It's, it's so inspirational that I included it in my last book. There's a scene that actually <laughs> is Tim. If you have, you probably read the book. But, I haven't read it uh, yet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a scene. You're in the scene, so is Romaine. You, oh, you'll recognize both of you. Yeah. I love it. Oh, okay, I have to go back and reread it now. But now I'll say that, like looking at you, and we don't have a video component to this to this podcast. We've decided that it's um, strictly audio for the time being. Right. But, but I see be a picture. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Some video stuff will be on the website. But I see that you are in a den of some kind, and behind Iniquity. you. What's that? Oh, den of yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that okay. You're in multiple dens. The one that I can see is full of books. You've got tons of books and interesting objects sitting on the shelves and, and some posters and whatnot. Can you tell me what is behind you there? What what books? What objects? Yeah, fair enough. Behind me are some some books which are like this sort of your standard. It's a, a shelf away from the other reference shelves. So I have a I have a bookcase, one of these, you know, six foot tall bookcases, which is just reference books. But one of the shelves behind me is sort of the if there was a, a an emergency theory fire and you needed to put something out, you would grab one of these books. So there's a couple of couple of theory encyclopedias and some cultural studies encyclopedias and books about uh, how to use language and things like that. So sort of really basic, um, like a dictionary of philosophy and a dictionary of uh, cultural studies. Those sorts of the kinds of things that you just you're going to need quickly and you can't step. <laughs> it's two steps away for me to get to the other bookcase. So that's one of them. The other shelves are full of what we used to call technocultural studies, which would be things like what makes us descriptions of what makes a cyborg or books about what on cyborgs and on robots and AI and on um, the cultures that go to produce those things. So how say an industrial, a late industrial culture, like the one we're living in, what is a dream? Basically, what are the dreams of a tech, of a culture like this? And, you know, what did America dream in the nineties as the web essentially was just beginning to layer on top of the internet and what were the internet dreams if there were any and because there were some and what were the physical dreams about and i was really interested in that i still am actually because of my interest in war studies one of the things that i'm focused on a lot is the way that war forces the body to join with machinery in ways which may be seriously unpleasant and damaging for the psyche but are necessary if you're going to survive. Uh, so, so that's a lot of what you're seeing behind me is sort of the theory, uh, the sort of books of theory about sort of how the body and technology are fused, what happens, what the culture is that produces some of that, those fusions, and so on. The other side of the room is mostly of uh, DVDs, I think, and, and Blu-rays and discs of various different kinds. And it's a little tiny piece of the collection, a lot of which has been, I sort of shipped a, uh, off to one of my other caves <laughs> that I dwell in. <laughs> and so it's basically the sort of best of hits of like great European film that, you know, everybody has to see and that you just have to have because they're such amazing pieces of art. And you just like, so I have things like very, at the very bottom of that collection would be say Zed by Costa Gavras. And if you don't know Costa Garvis, which I'm sure you do, but 
Um, you know, he's a Greek director who was in the 60s and 70s made really important films about sort of the way that people give up their freedoms without even really being asked to. And so that we we continue to have the belief that when people come for us, it's going to look like the Nazis, but it's not. It's going to be air miles, basically. That's kind of what you're looking at. And then right behind me is a square uh, tin sign with some images on it by Ron Cobb. And I love this piece of design. It was one of the most important pieces of design that I looked at when I was a sort of budding visualizer, uh, which is what they used to call the kind of thing that I did, where you would sort of, you would be asked to visualize, say, uh, spacecraft and, uh, or wheels for spacecraft or, or, and in this case, this piece of design by Ron Cobb is, uh, for me, I, I understood when I saw it, it just was like, it was like a, like a jolt of recognition in my sort of. What, what's it called? Did you say the name? Yeah. The guy's name is Ron Cobb, C-O-B-B. And he's an American, was an American designer. And the piece of art? It's a piece of art. Yeah. It's a piece of art from Alien, in fact. Ah, <laughs> okay. And now we're getting to the meat. That's right. Yeah. That's, the, yeah. that's your party piece. You want to talk about Alien? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I love that film. But man, like the things you've already brought up, Mark, this is going to be a three hour podcast. <laughs> I know. I did warn you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So many fascinating yeah. directions that we could go in. I, you know, it's funny because I recently watched Alien before we knew you're going to be oh. on the podcast. And I did have the thought during the middle of it. Because I know it's H.R. Geiger who designed the, uh, you know, the Xenomorph That's right. stuff. But the rest of the design is great. Yes. Yeah. Like, it's not just the Xenomorph that's, that's amazing. Right. And I had the thought, I wonder what Tim thinks about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Way before we decided to have you come on the podcast. So yeah, yeah. And we're going to find out. So why, why Alien? Why did you want to talk to us about Alien? I think this film sits at a boundary marker, um, pr- produces or it is a boundary marker between two different ways of looking at the world. One of them is the end of the 60s, what I think of as sort of the, which something which began in sort of the late 60s and which you see well into the middle of the 70s, where you begin to see really serious questioning of corporate uh, life, for want of a better phrase, I guess. In other words, do we trust corporations to behave in our best interests as uh, citizens, I suppose? And when I was growing up in the 60s, that is when I was a kid in the 60s, the answer to that was yes, pretty much. Corporations were considered to be uh, crucial to the economy and big corporations, especially. The big three were still actually running in Detroit. And Detroit was the city. It was like, <laughs> it's interesting. It was sort of one of those uh, industrial spots that you had to have. Like everybody pointed to Detroit as being sort of the, the future of the, the future of America. And, it's so interesting to look at that and say 30 years later, it was all gone, you know, which is, there's a beautiful picture of that in uh, Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive, mm-hmm. which is that picture of, of Detroit, which is just, you know, and it's interesting because the the female vampire, Tilda Swinton, oh man, she's so great, says, uh, oh, you know, this will bloom again. There's water here. It's just one of those marvelous lines. Uh, <laughs> just, oh. And I was like, oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, I think that there's this sense that I grew up with and the people that my, my basically children my age grew up with that the, you could trust 
corporate America because it had brought the world through World War II. It was safe, basically. This was a safe way to live. And at the same time, as I guess people like my mother and father were reading things like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and they were beginning to talk about phosphates in the water, and they were saying, well, wait a second, you know, we're, what's happening to the heavy metals and what's happening to this, uh, we've got this, these pickling agents we're using in steel plants, and what about that? And the, the space race was on, and I was a huge space junkie when I was a kid. But later on, you know, she, she always said, you know, why are we going into space when we have so many problems on the Earth? And this was a huge, that was a huge argument between sort of these different kinds of understanding of the, what was the future going to be. So I think in 1979, which is when Alien comes out, we'd reached the point where, the, where in science fiction, it was understood that basically you were no longer safe in a world of corporations. And that had been underlined by things like Rollerball. And it was to some extent, to some extent, comes out in Star Wars, but much more comes out in what I would call THX 1138, or what it, in the film was called Fix 1138, which was George Lucas' studio, well, sort of student film that he made at the Art Center in uh, California, yeah. right? And uh, the, that was really a, a sort of um, countercultural set piece. I mean, when I was growing up, everybody went to see THX 1138 on Friday night and, you know, get blasted. And then it was taken over by Rocky Horror Picture Show, (laughs) (laughs) which was, I didn't find it interesting, but uh, you could sing. So the rush to hedonism had started. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. So I think that 79, we understood at that point, I think partly because of say books like John Brunner's The Shockwave Rider, which was 75, Mm -hmm. that there was something going on here which was bad news. And part of it had to do with being connected. And that's what Shockwave Rider is so good about. Uh, it's one of the early cyberpunk novels. And um, I think it actually is, in many ways, a more important book than Neuromancer. Okay, I'm going to get heat for that. But whatever. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> and so I think that by the time we get to 79, you can see that there's a huge part of the population which says you cannot trust a corporation to do anything except throw you under the bus, so to speak, because it will serve its own interests. And if those interests have up until now been parallel with what human interests are, reconsider that because corporations themselves are now alive. And this was one of the suggestions that John Kenneth Galbraith has in his New Industrial State, which is a very famous book that now now is in, I think, five editions. But in the third edition, he basically says, the corporation is the new form of life on the planet. And I remember when I read that, it lit up for me. I was like, oh, yes, this is very true. And it wasn't at the time that easy to see it because yeah. most of us probably didn't interact with major corporations the way we do now. Like I didn't, I wasn't making a daily deal, let's say, with Apple or whatever, signing. I didn't sign end user license agreements on a daily basis, but now I do. I wasn't asked to sign contract law, you know sort of debate contract law issues, but now we are, and I don't have the training for it. Well, and nobody you know, even reads those. Well, exactly. Agree, yeah. Agree to. Yeah. yeah. And it's also, it's before Reagan, right? Reagan yeah. gets elected. Uh, backing back before that, it's after, you know, the Powell memo. Mm-hmm. So it's after that conspiracy started, but very few people understood yeah. what that meant. Uh, you know, that there was actually a conspiracy to subvert 
American capitalism. Right. And you're right, because in the 60s, in the 50s, the 40s, the 60s, American capitalism, the CEO of a corporation would just, if you said, do you have any duty to the public in, at large? They would say, well, of course I do. I mean, that's exactly. just, of course. Yeah. Now, that would be like, no, I can't, I can't do that, or I'm not giving perfect shareholder value, which is my only job. That's right. You know, it anticipates all that. Wow. So, you know, when you're talking about the change to how corporations started to operate, another movie popped into my head, and I just, I just want to run this past you to think if I'm totally off base on this. Networked? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Because that movie, like, I don't know when that was made, 70... 1976. Pat I think, is the writer of that movie. Yeah, and it's it's a fabulous. It's still got in my mind the one of the best speeches ever. Oh. Ned Beatty, you have meddled with the forces of nature. That's right. Uh, and I was like, I watched that recently, and I was like, Oh my oh, yeah. god, this is predicting what's going to happen not only to American media or yeah. North American media, but corporations yeah. writ large. Yeah. Well, and also it 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 really was transcendently perceptive in a way that of understanding that when um, the Albert Finney character yeah. goes, yeah. you know, I want you to go to your balcony and say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And people did. And it was, I remember seeing it in the film and thinking, well, this is just nuts. Like nobody would do this. And then, well, you know, cut to 40 years later and that's what everybody's been doing. Yeah. Now, now the movie I was thinking about, and, and I want to touch on something you said early on about there not being any good or many good science fiction movies in the seventies. Yeah. The movie that I immediately thought of was, uh, was silent running. And you'd mentioned uh, Douglas Trumbull as yeah. well, who, who directed that. Yes. And which touches yeah. on the same theme as, uh, as alien really, I, I think the corporations and the planet earth, uh, basically, mm-hmm. uh, deforesting the planet That's and right. then protecting the, uh, the last remaining trees. That's right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's a fascinating movie because, the way that the Bruce Dern character, the, the the lone character basically, handles himself is not unlike the way you what you see in things like I think it was Twilight's Last Cleaning, the film with Burt Lancaster where he's he's in a missile silo. There are sort of some of these anti-war films, and Silent Running really takes part of that, or it takes part in that discussion. I think really properly, and he he recruits. As you remember, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, the, the sort of R2-D2, er, R2-D2s, who are very cute little characters. And as I remember when I saw the film, when the first time I saw the film, I must have been, I don't know, 12 or something like that. And I was truly gutted when uh, there's a there's some kind of solar storm and Huey, one of the, these are little walking televisions, basically with arms, and uh, they're cute. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, one of them is blown away in the silver star and you just just the two legs are left <laughs> standing yeah. on the spacecraft I and i remember i was like i was so upset and my sister was like well just go away you know <laughs> oh yeah yeah it was, so it's a very human picture i think of that bruce dern is allowed to in the same way that james Kahn is in rollerball allowed to be a hero um allowed to some extent to be a populist hero without it being poisoned, essentially. And what he does ultimately, as you know, as you remember, is save the forests. Yes. Yeah. Because they're he they are he is ordered to destroy them. And he he, he saves them instead. And he's training the three little robots to take care of the forests. Yeah. And, Although to what extent he's really saved them by putting them into deep space yeah. <laughs> it remains to be seen. True. But back to back to Alien. Right. Yes. So 
you're saying one of the things you wanted to talk about was really the design of the movie and, and yeah. what's, what specifically about the design or the things that you yeah. still look back and go, wow, that's still. Well, the, the stuff, I mean, I'm, I'm going to work my way back to Ron Cobb because I think Cobb is yeah. the, is the partly sung now hero. It's the, the, his heroism in, in the design world is sort of known, I think, inside it, but not very much known outside of it because partly because he's just, a, he was a quiet guy and sort of, I think a lot of designers are, they're not really, they do tend to be good with images and not necessarily good with words. But I think Cobb was one of these people who was good with both. And I think he was, he was a bright guy and uh, there was a lot going on inside his head. He had gone to Vietnam as a foot soldier and uh, come back early. I think it was 62 or three. So it was like early, early, early in Vietnam. And there were, I don't think he saw any action. I hope he didn't. It suggested that, that maybe it looks as though to me, he probably had some kind, he went through some kind of depression when he came back. That's not really a surprise. So the the centerpiece of, of so much of the design for Alien is built on, on two earlier films, which basically bombed one way or another. One of them literally bombed and one of them never got made. And the, the one that never got made is, the, of course, the Hodorowsky's Dune. Uh, right, yeah. The first version of Dune that there was going to be. Can I jump in there for a second? If, yeah, if you sure. haven't watched the documentary about that movie, you, I mean, to the listeners, you really do have to watch it. It's, it, it makes you long for a thing that never existed so much. Absolutely. Well, yeah. and especially it makes you long for the book that they made. Yes. It. Yeah. Oh, of which there are some, I think five copies. Yeah, Mark, there's how like many? A, yeah. There's a handful of copies. They probably yeah. cost, you know, you'd have to be owner of a CEO of a big corporation to buy one probably. <laughs> That's right. So that, and that film is just called, and my memory is just called Hodorowsky's Dune, right? I think so. Yeah. 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 So if you don't know how to spell it, neither do I. It's J O D O R O S K Y, something like that. <laughs> if you, if you want me to go check, I will go check. No, on, it's okay. On the, on the I, XO brain, but otherwise, yeah, I think yeah, it starts no, with a J and there's an O next after that's it. it. That's so right, yeah. that'll get you there. They just call him Hodo because nobody knows how to spell yeah, his name. Right. He was famous for making these counterculture films like Holy Mountain and El Topo, which were these sort of crazy visionary acid trip films that people used to actually go and drop acid to and then go and see again. And so he came out with that and he was approached by Dan O'Bannon eventually. And Dan O'Bannon is the other unsung hero of this of this story. And it's a very sad story because he he was such a bright guy and he never really got a chance to direct. I think if O'Bannon had had a chance to direct, I think we would have seen some truly in, intriguing Brazil-like films huh. that had the kind of intelligence that Terry Gilliam was able to bring to film, but had a whole different sensibility. It didn't have the sort of overlay of British sensibility, which Gilliam had picked up by working for Python and so on. So O'Bannon is one of these, is one of these people. And O'Bannon was really smart about visuals. And he also was an artist. I mean, they all drew and wrote and did everything pretty much. And he recruited people like Chris Foss. And so there's this fascinating thing where it's about getting the right people. And Horowski seen, you know, picked up O'Bannon. O'Bannon called on Foss. Chris Foss was a famous, and this is going to sound bizarre, but but um, for those for those of us in the science fiction world, it's like we adore book covers because the book covers are so often these really visionary pieces of art about 
a place you want to go visit or you don't, but it may be this sort of like those early paintings of the covers of Dune were astonishing. There were beautiful, evocative images of this desert planet and the Fremen and the blue eyes and Wow. And that was, uh, there were no images otherwise. I mean, the, the rest of it was in black and white. So here we're in full color paintings, uh, sort of your images of your imagination coming to life. So Chris Foss was, was a British book cover artist, and he did these astonishing, strange book covers. And he was using, he was an early user of the airbrush. And at the time, when you, to use an airbrush, you pretty much had to learn to produce a steady stream of of air through your through your lungs, basically because you you actually physically blew into a little tube which went into the into the pipe basically that makes the, the spray. Now, of course, but the well, very quickly uh, they began to produce compressors that you could use. So it produced these very slick paintings that had no brush strokes, and this was something which was going to mark Foss's art, and it was going to produce these quite otherworldly images which appeared to be in some ways textureless and surfaceless. It's very, very interesting. And it's one of the first things that computer imaging will, will be able to reproduce when in when we get to 3D computer graphics in say the mid 80s. It'll start to look like airbrush because it's the first thing you can do is fong shading. So Chris, he's gonna pull on Chris Foss and he's gonna go and get, as as Mark says, Giger, HR uh, Giger, who is the Swiss surrealist who has or had in his head a series of broken pieces of glass that were made of black sort of <laughs> the radioactive uh, misogynist uh, horrific uh, sort of images which just kind of kept slashing out of his brain and he just kept painting them and painting them and they were gynophobic and technophobic and uh, they were images of cities and guns full of, of uh, unborn children. And oh my God, it was just sort of incredible what he called biomechanics. And this concept of biomechanics hmm. is something which we in the world of interested in cyborgs, which I was and am, would often point at Giger and say, this is the guy. This is the guy who imagined basically our worst nightmares. So it was O'Bannon who brought those people together. And it was O'Bannon who knew Cobb. Wow. So he knew Cobb because he himself finally directed, wrote and directed a film, which was a flop called Dark Star. I should say it was a bomb. <laughs> it's a funny little movie. Um, and Cobb actually did a drawing. If I once bought the video of this, even though I couldn't play the video anymore, because it had the Cobb cover art on it. And right. I'd never seen it before. Didn't Carpenter work on that? Yes. Yes. Good for you. Almost nobody knows this little film. And um, the O'Bannon is, I think, the pilot. And, but the main issue is that the, the ship is a, is a planet killer uh, or a sun killer. And it, it drops, they drop bombs in the sun. Is that right, Mark? I you remember? Think I've, yeah, I think that's right. I, I've seen it. Well, I can check that if you want. But The whole mission is to convince the, the ship to drop a bomb into a sun so it'll blow up a galaxy because they've, they've been decided they've got to clear, <laughs> clear the galaxy. But the ship is depressed, and because the ship is depressed, it won't drop its bomb. Yes, and so the they're yeah they're destroying rogue planets. That's what's going on. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so so the pilot spends most of the time talking to the bomb and giving it therapy. <laughs> and at the very end of the film, of course, the the ship is probably is finally happy and is like, oh, okay, great, and it releases the bomb. And it's, uh, so this is wonderful. So there's this one set basically, which is the interior of the Dark Star, which is the ship. And the set was designed by Ron Cobb. And so this is how O'Bannon, who directed, who was going to wind up trying to direct Dark Star and starred in it, right. got to know 
Ron Cobb. So then Dune failed. They never made it. And Dark Star was released and bombed. No pun intended. Well, actually, there was a pun intended. <laughs> and so what we get then is O'Bannon being hired by Ridley Scott and really by, by uh, Ron Schusett to come in and sort of be an art director, sort of, to launch what will become Aliens, Alien, period. And uh, he says, well, we've got to talk to my friend Ron Cobb. And so they go over to Cobb Studio in New York, and Cobb is busy painting exteriors of, say, the planet, which we never see. Mm -hmm. And they're just gorgeous paintings. There was an early book published by Wild and Woolley, which was a, an Australian, you, as you can imagine, Australian publisher. And Cobb at this point had become a real sort of countercultural hero in the early 70s, basically, because he was doing uh, editorial cartoon every week. And these were bleak, incredibly anti-corporate, pro-ecology editorial cartoons. One of them that I remember, I still give it to my students to see, to my war, my war course students to see, is um, it's a little kid who's clutching his stomach, which is bleeding profusely. And um, He's opened a box, which is this is fighting leatherneck, puts you in the action, and there's this action toy. And the toy has stabbed the kid with his bayonet and is going off <laughs> looking for the next victim, you know. And they all look like that. There was oh, sort of brother. This, and he was just turning these things out. I mean, it just there's a sort of brilliance, there's a genius there. And so O'Bannon was like, Hey, Ron, you know, we need you to come and design for this movie. He's like, oh, okay, fine, it's that movie. I'm in. And so he goes and joins the team that is going to put together alien, what will become alien. And so now we come to Ron Cobb. And one of the things that they did was they said, we want to have a working environment and Cobb somewhere along the way, we now know a bit more than we used to somewhere along the way, Cobb picked up essentially the basics of industrial drafting. And so he actually could make things. And so when he rendered things, he rendered them as if they were going to be used in an environment. And so what, is behind me is the what he called semiotic standard. And at the time, semiotics was really Detroit. It was this was the 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 nouvelle vogue of the new this, this is the 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 avant-garde of the avant-garde. Like this was the it wasn't almost not even happening yet. The people who were writing about semiotics were basically French theorists who were talking about how we make reality. Because uh, basically, semiotics are usually, well, anything can be a semiotic system. So, for instance, the example that I will always use for my, my youngest students is um, traffic lights, or basically the traffic narrative, basically the discourse of traffic control, uh, which means you have to learn a book and you have to learn what signs mean, and red always means stop, and green always means go, those kinds of things. So, there's a whole language. Yellow means go faster. And how we drive. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Let's just stop there for a second. Okay. What does semiotics mean briefly? Right. It's a discussion of the science of signs. So how do we use signs to make meaning with each other? And these signs might be language, uh, that spoken language. They might be written language. It might be color. It might be fashion. It might be cars. All of these are languages, basically. So it's Cobb who brings this. Right. To the making of Alien, and yeah. how does he do so? That's right. And so what he does is he uses, he creates a basic semiotic language for a starship. You can see this coming out of 2001, because there are scenes in 2001 where Haywood Floyd, say, goes into the, it always gets a laugh in the theater, 
uh, when he goes into the Andy Gravit into the into the toilet and he has to, it says you know how to go to the bathroom in space, which they actually wrote, but it's in English. It's just in English and it's all language. It's not pictures <laughs> because realistically, yeah. who would be going to space? We don't know. Could be Russian, Chinese, could be Japanese. Hmm. Could be, we don't know, right? So why do we assume it's English? Why do we assume they're going to be able to read? How about if it's all has to be done in pictures? Hmm. Okay, let's hope the IKEA people don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> right on, especially with those dumb little Allen keys they get you. They're all the wrong size. <laughs> so, but that's the same idea. Actually, it's a really good example of a non-linguistic semiotic system because semiotics any sign it just means semion in, in greek is sign so it just means any science of signs or any sign system which is recognizable so for instance fashion is one of those systems um, where we understand that if you're in a three-piece suit you you mean one kind of thing and then if you're if it's the weekend and you're in a short sleeve shirt and or or a t-shirt and shorts you mean another kind of thing so these are all different systems of dress or of understanding essentially each other and what we're doing uh, that kind of thing. So Cobb brings this to StarCraft and you start to see them. So now when you go and look at the film, you'll see his semiotic patches all over the place. And they'll say, you know, one of them will be, on, there are famous ones on the bulkhead door. You'll see um, a ladder sort of image uh, going up to uh, between the decks. And it indicates, you know, here's a, la- this is a gangway, a ladder way. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see ones for, biotics like hazardous dangers mm-hmm. to biotics specimens like mother has them like mother yeah yeah has a huge that's yeah, right that's yeah well and mother the the computer basically the hal type sort of extension because she really is a great extension of hal mm-hmm. is has her own nest essentially and speaks her own language so he so he brings this to this film mm-hmm. it doesn't this semiotic system doesn't exist in the real world yet that's right that's right. But it's his vision of the future. That's it. And now, of course, it's everywhere. That's exactly right. And if you look at the probably the, the most clear example that we, we have, many of us will have experienced is wayfinding in airports, which is incredibly complex and requires, you really have to be an expert in understanding how people look and where they look for help and you know how they, where, how they interpret signs. And if you see a sign ahead of you, up, up above you, and you're trying to indicate to go forward. What does that mean? How do you how do you indicate that? Do you put an arrow in perspective, pointing forward? Do you put an arrow straight up? You know, what do you what do you do? How do you indicate to somebody? You know, go left when you see a this. You know, I'm looking for a bathroom which looks like this, and so on. So these kinds of like we have all experienced these kinds of both good and bad wayfinding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good wayfinding. I often. Well, for a long time, there was terrible wayfinding in one of the hospitals in London, and they used to post people at different corners of the hospital while they were it was under construction. And they you'd sort of wander past, and they're like, "Are you looking? What are you looking for?" You're like, "I'm looking for the radiology department." They'd say, "Oh, oh we'll come with us," yeah. and they would take you because there was no way to find it. <laughs> I'm laughing because I this is something that's a big problem in web design, obviously, right? Because there's no right. there's no standard really Absolutely. at this point when it comes to how we mm-hmm. we interpret icons or semiotics. And so I always use the example of yeah. going. I'm hiking with my brother in Italy. We're looking at this. We actually spent a few minutes looking at this sign. And I'll, I'll what I will do is I'll draw a picture of what I think we saw. And basically, it was this weird <laughs> shaped flame. This is what it looked like. It looked like a weird shaped flame. Okay. Over top of 
what looked like a spoon. And then there was a tree in the background. <laughs> and but the flame was maybe an egg. Oh. Like that was my first take on it was like, does this mean I'm not allowed to egg race in the forest? <laughs> yeah, yeah like, sounds like an egg like, like, well, that can't yeah. be right. That's obviously not what they mean by this. I'm like, and it took this like probably 30 seconds, 40 seconds, maybe a minute. Oh, it's a flame. It's like no fire in the forest. That's what that's supposed to be. But it was just such oh, a bad God. representation it's of terrible. fire. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But that's the problem. <laughs> oh, my God. That's the difficulty of coming yeah. up with a good system like that is findings. And so right. when you get a convention, then everyone like, yes, we've got a convention. Thank God. We all know what this means. You know? Right. That's right. And which is interesting. You know, every time it's as always – I'm interested in stuff that we don't pay attention to. So when I turn the car on in the morning, as one of my students say, you know, when you turn on the car on in the morning, I say, you know, that's like, that's magic because the technology is working. He says, it's magic if it turns on. (laughs) Okay, right. Fair enough. (laughs) Somebody suffering with an old car. But one of the things that happens is that there's a, there's a full panoply of semiotics on your dashboard that lights up briefly for just a second as all of them light up and all the, all the lights test themselves basically. And then they go dark, except for, you know, the engine temperature, the fuel gauge, sort of the basic stuff. It shows you green drive is on, you know, whatever, those few things. But then when something goes wrong, it's like, oh, here's an oil can. And we're like, oh, I'm out of oil. It's like, how did you, how did you learn that was an oil can? Somewhere along the way, the culture taught you, this is the semiotic for an oil can. This little drawing means mm. oil can. This little drawing means battery. And someone in the 70s would not have, have known. Yeah, that's right. Because we really didn't discuss this. And because industrial design was something which was pretty much hidden from the public. I mean, not, not because designers were hiding, but because the public was like, just sell me a thing. I just want the new washer. I want the new television set. And things were also, I, I should also say, they didn't have computers in them. And so they were simpler. Okay, so... The corporations in the universe of Alien mm-hmm. are possibly evil. We we think they're evil. That certainly becomes clear, I think, in the in the second uh, movie, right? But at least they got the semiotics correct. <laughs> That's right. I mean, the thing about these—it's true. You're right about this. That what's interesting about these the images of these things is that the corporations appear to be efficient at what they're doing. Now, what comes up, as you say, in the second film and in the third film to a lesser extent, because the third and fourth films are more discussions about personal freedom, I think, than, than the other things, but <clears throat> or religion and yeah, predestination, freedom, sort of typical uh, science fiction mm-hmm. uh, fodder. But, but I think these first two films do, as you say, uh, indicate that Wayland yutani the, the, the corporation that is sort of behind, it turns out, all of this, is not our friend, that's for sure. But they also are prepared to consider things as wastage, basically. They don't want to lose anything. And they, and they tell Ripley off because as, she's, as they say to her, you know, that I, she, they, they blow up her very expensive star freighter, as she says, <laughs> an M-class star freighter. So that's true. But at the same time, Burke in the second film sends the colonists directly to the ship to be infected yeah. by the aliens. And it's all too efficient. The aliens are more efficient than the corporation. And so then it's a fight between basically the corporation, one big bug, basically, versus the, the nest of bugs. 
And that's the discussion which you see coming up in Aliens, which really comes to its conclusion in, in the fourth film, in Alien Resurrection. But you're right that the, I think that there's a more complex picture that arrives out of the corporate discussion than there is in Alien, the first film. In Alien, the first film, it's like corporation bad, don't trust, basically, which comes out of the 70s. And now here's something else, because I know you're very interested in the question of war. Yeah. From the point of view of we should stop this habit of war. That's right. But now in a situation in the universe of Alien. Right. We have an alien intelligence that is fighting us, and we have no choice but to go to war with them. That's right. This is the thing that makes aliens, which is why I've written fairly extensively about aliens, into a really great piece of propaganda. Because there is no doubt about the fact that you must go to war with these creatures, and in the same way that you must go to war with, say, the Empire in Star Wars. You must, because they will turn Aunt Beru into a smoking skeleton and you know destroy your livelihood on Tatooine and so on and, you know, kill your Ewoks on Endor, the usual, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In other words, the things you kill your friends, you know, destroy the Redwood Forests and uh, things like that. So, yeah, but I think that that picture is, it is now more subtle and more complex than it is in the early days when we're still pretty much still sort of hitting the pipe of the end of the Vietnam War. And that's why I think Alien really has more in common with, say, Apocalypse Now than it does with Aliens or the other Alien movies. And now to tie back to your earlier comments about propaganda, Mm. you haven't really attributed any morality to the question of propaganda yet in this conversation. Right. But you're suggesting that that there is propaganda happening in the movie Alien. Yep. You're not saying necessarily whether it's good or bad. That's right. Where where would you land on that? Well, propaganda, it's kind of like saying, you know, is a hammer good or bad? I mean, propaganda is a tool. And every if you when you get to a certain size, when the when communication between uh say groups or social groups gets to a certain size, you are going to use propaganda whether you like it or not. Um you're going to you may call it something else. But you are going to start selling messages and you are going to start needing to sell people on a story which they may not know about or be interested in, but you are going to have to convince them that this is a way to go and you're going to have to ask them to sacrifice, to give up things that they would otherwise want to have. And so to do that, they have to be massaged into a position where they agree, they genuinely agree to give these things up in exchange for what you're handing them. So I don't think of propaganda as being good or bad. Propaganda bad, basically sort of that, uh, (laughs) to to sort of paraphrase George Orwell for a moment, I think is um, really comes out of World War II because we're used to Goebbels because Goebbels was such a good propagandist. Mm -hmm. And we're like, oh, propaganda is always Nazi. It's like, no, 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 (laughs) no, 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 no. Propaganda is a method of communication in the same way that, or it's a mode, I guess, of communication in the same way that advertising is. Um, or PR, or me writing a blog post. And there's, I mean, to use an example of, you know, positive propaganda, uh, maybe the the advertising campaigns against smoking, or against drinking Mm. and driving, those would be examples of, Mm -hmm. I think, fairly positive propaganda, but they're still propaganda. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, you're, you're asking people to give up a physical yeah. pleasure. And in fact, I mean, in the case of smoking, something which their body has Addicted gotten to. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's going to be a hard, it's yeah. a hard ask. Back to the question of propaganda and, and alien. Yeah. Was Ridley Scott aware that he was making propaganda? Was, was he conscious of that? Well, Scott's a very bright guy. Um, and I, there's no doubt about it that every single film he makes is a message film. I mean, there, you know, he's very, he puts the messages front and center and, and then he sews them. There really isn't a frame in, of the film that happens. I don't think, I don't think uh, Scott makes mistakes. I mean, he's, he's made massive mistakes. Probably the biggest was, um, uh, the thing with, uh, Tim Curry, right. As the devil, uh, the hell? legend, legend, legend. legend. Okay. That was Tim Curry. I think it was Tim Curry. Yeah, yeah you're right. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. He played, he played like eight hours to put the prosthetics. Oh my on. god! Can you imagine how long that? He's was? He's wonderful. Happen? He's tremendous. He's, He's the best yeah. thing in the, in the film. Yeah. yeah. But so I think that you know Scott has has occasionally bombed, but even then, I think that there's a there's a practice in Scott's filmmaking which is so down to the absolute nitty gritty brass tacks. Every single frame, I think, is examined. And the only reason I think now they, they, he'll just go back and remake it yeah, because he can, because he's powerful enough. As a friend of mine calls him King Ridley. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But at the time they didn't have that. I mean, he made alien for $4.2 million, which was relatively okay money at the time, but it wasn't a lot, not especially for a, for a space film, basically. Mm-hmm. So they really made the thing on a shoestring. It was his second film, wasn't it? It was, yeah. The, the Duelist was his first film, yeah. Was, they had less money for Aliens, right? Or like relatively less? Relatively, yeah. 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 But that was Cameron, yeah. And it's worth mentioning too that he came, uh, in, with regard to the question of propaganda, he came from the world of advertising. That's right. Mm-hmm. Both of them did. Both he and Tony, his brother, yes. came from advertising. And so I think, I think Scott is extremely good at manipulating... The message and that was it's the same thing you'll remember the uh the mac ad you know 1984 won't be 1984 and has the hammer thrower right and mm. uh, that ad you know won every single award there possibly could have been and i think it's a damn good job that people like scott aren't making ads all the time because we would just be doing whatever they they're so beautiful <laughs> i'd just be watching ads that's all i'd be doing well, that, that's a whole ads. other question is whether or not we how effective these ads are yeah what was the message then what was the right. propaganda in alien well the okay the the um the optimistic part of me would like to say that ridley scott understood essentially what it was like to grow up as a laborer or as laborer's son in England, in a depressed country, because England was, as you know, broken basically by World War II. Although they quote unquote won the war, they really lost the peace. And the depression, the subsequent depression, which engulfed Britain, really carried on for the next kind of 20 years. I mean, by the 60s, they were starting to come out of it. Mark knows more about this than I, because he was traveling, I think, more. Well, we lived lived there, even in 74, my yeah. family lived there and like the, the rotating strikes and stuff yeah. were still yeah. going on. Yeah. And I think, you know, the text of, I mean, just the text of the, of the movie supports you. Like really the first thing you hear out of the two guys, like, uh, you know, Dean Stockton <laughs> and the other guys like, Hey, can we talk about our contracts? Cause right. we've discovered we're not getting paid enough. And that's, that's right. a, that's a theme, right? That just keeps that's coming it. up again and again and again. That's right. And Ripley, who is sort of the the young flight officer, 
who is has risen above her, arguably has risen above her station because she is bright. Right. And it turns out that Ripley is able to do pretty much everything, which is great. I mean, she's an amazing character. And Sigourney Weaver really made, I think that role made her and I think she made it. And yeah, I think that's the best thing she's ever done. I mean, that, that role has been so splendid. So I think it's, I think fundamentally it's a working class person's film. And I think that Veronica Cartwright, Yvette Cotto and Harry Dean Staunton are in many ways the, the suckers, you know, these are the ones, the victims who are thrown basically into the company's business to do the company's bidding because they have no choices. There is they it's this or die, basically. They they will otherwise not be given air to breathe is sort of the implication. Yeah. And as opposed to, say, John Hurt, who of course dies first, and that's that, that has to happen because he is a believer. Um, he seems to be a sort of a quintessential Brit in many ways, you know, that he's he believes the system will work for him. It worked during World War II, it still is working. Whereas Yafet Koto and, and uh, Harry Dean Staunton are so clearly American. And I think that is, there is a discussion of race there. I mean, I think that Yafet Koto, yeah, yeah. partly because he's such an astonishing actor and he's so compelling and his few, few lines that he has are so remarkably charismatic. I mean, the, the, the force that comes and he is the one who says to Ripley, you know, I have heard enough and I am asking you to shut it down. And that's the core. That's really the push is that mm-hmm. I think is that um, here's, and I, it, I don't think it's, I don't think it's an accident that it comes from the effect Koto, you know, the, the, the American black man basically who has also portrayed black workers in Detroit, specifically in that Richard Pryor film, blue collar, where there's this this sense of these guys basically just getting just getting screwed over all the time, and so it does, I don't think it's a mistake that he has the line that basically says, "Stop the company." You know, the company is talking through Ash, and Ash is asking for our deaths, and I have heard enough. And so I think that's really the the message, if you will, or the moral of the story, which was written by Dan O'Bannon. That's right, a white guy. <laughs> and an American, not not a not a Brit. That's right. And so yeah. I think that Scott brings over this working class sensibility of grit. And there you see this in the earlier Scott films. That is, you see it in I mean, there's a discussion. Well, when you take on the dualists, you take on a piece of, of Conrad, when you take on a Conrad text, which I think he goes on talking about Conrad through Alien, and it shows up again in Aliens, right? Because it's the, the name of the of the ship is Nostromo. Um, the ship in Aliens is Sulaco. Um, all of these come from the Conrad novel, Nostromo, which is about basically mm-hmm. a guy who is sort of the the company's man in this fictional town in South America, where he's kind of uh, used as an enforcer to bring silver out of a mine by abusing the local the local labor force. And ultimately, Nostromo steals the load of silver so that he can become a free man. And of course it goes the way all things go in Conrad, you know, super badly. Super <laughs> you know, bad. Everybody yeah. dies. It know? never works out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so, and the, and typically the story is narrated by somebody who is of the class who knows how to read and write and essentially narrate the story. And like Marlowe basically says he was one of us in some way, but they must perish and I think that's what we're looking at. I mean, I think this is fundamentally, that's why I'm, I would connect Alien with Heart of Darkness and with Apocalypse Now. 
And I think these are the, this is the moral, if you're looking, is, is that um, you can really only trust the person beside you. And even then, the person beside you may be a killer robot that's been planted on you by the company. So at that point, you're like, what, what else is going to happen? When Ash uh, sort of explodes, you know, when he's taken apart by a Fed Koto who knocks, literally knocks his head off, as, as yes. you remember, with a uh, fire extinguisher. First time I cheered in the movie. <laughs> yeah, boy, it, it's a little tiny bit of release because everything yeah. has been so, such so shocking up until that point. I cannot tell you how many killer robots I've been forced to work beside at the CBC. <laughs> so true. Now, did you, did you like the, I, I assume you liked the movie. I liked the movie. The first time I saw the movie, I was so horror stricken by it. I, I genuinely did not, I had not read about, I I read that it was science fiction and that people said it was good science fiction. I was like, we're going to see it. So I dragged my father who was a science fiction, loved science fiction film. I was like, hey, it was the middle of the summer. It was super hot. I'm like, let's get out of the heat. Let's go to this film. And my poor sister, who loves science fiction, but hates horror. Yeah. And ooh, we ooh. went to the first splatter movie in history. It was yeah. like, oh my God. So when John Hurt explodes like that, I think that she probably didn't sleep for the next two or three months. And uh, I and probably still probably is still traumatized. By yeah. It. yeah. Oh, yeah. And I yeah, I'm, I'm still I'm still I still owe her many, many, many <laughs> <laughs> for that. But I think that my first experience was I was genuinely horrified. I mean, I was I was genuinely revolted by the idea. And I was I remember my chest actually hurting. Um, it was a real horror film reaction. It was a real, uh, really visceral. And to the extent that I was afraid of the movie, I loved it. But I was at the same time, I was afraid of it. And for years, I finally went to see it because I was working with a cognitive behavioral therapist. And, I, and he said, okay, what else are you afraid of? I'm like, well, I'm afraid of Alien. He's like, go see it. So, oh my God, you know, so off I went. And it was very interesting because I adored it um, just as I remembered. It was just as good as I remembered. In fact, maybe even better. And it was so beautiful. I'd forgotten how gorgeous it is. And I'd remembered the scene in the hole where Brett uh, comes into the to the hole and the chains are hanging down and they're just and there's yeah. water dripping and it yeah. drips on his hat. And it's so tactile and it's so sensual and sensuous. And he he takes off his hat and they're all they've all been so hot and sweaty. And here's this water and he's, and you're just waiting for and nothing happens. It's all I was like. Wow, what a uh, even then I understood that I was this was a piece of filmmaking which we had never seen before. It looked in many ways it reminded me of Taxi Driver because it had the same kind of intensity and luminous quality to it um, in its sort of horribleness. So yes, I became a fan of it, but in that whole time I I became a fan of the parts I could look at, which was the design. And mm-hmm. so I was very interested in what had made this film work for me. And the storytelling, absolutely, the acting, yes, the directing was beautiful. But in the end, what I kept coming back to was the design, the place felt real. And now as the set, they built the set such that when you got into the to the ship, essentially, there was only one way out. You actually had to turn around and go all the way out. So at the point that they're sort of in part of the set, um, if they finished, they actually had to exit the set. And because they were using dry ice, as you know, there's less oxygen. And so they actually were like, they, were, <laughs> they have to make sure they didn't pass that. Getting lightheaded from yeah. the dry ice. Yeah. Oh my God. So they were sort of buried in this labyrinth. And, and Cod, <laughs> I read, every, I took every chance. I re- remember there was no web. 
So we were reliant on things like crappy magazines like Starlog and Fantastic and Fantagore and things like that, which is awful. For these little tiny snippets of of um, of interviews with people and mm-hmm. you read like four or five lines by somebody and that's all you knew about the movie because there was no there was no fan base to talk to basically yet unless you were in la so i began to read as much as i could outside about Cobb, and there wasn't much but i then then wild and woolly this publisher which i mentioned before published a book called color vision which is this 12 by 12 is the size of a basically of an album or of a, an LP at the, what we would have called an LP or a record <laughs> at the time. Um, and it's a lost uh, art form. Yeah, exactly. And it's full of these pages of art. Yeah. And I was so impressed by the art and by the clarity of the vision and by the density of the darkness in it that I, I was like, I want to do this. And so the book stayed on my drafting table where I painted and where I drew for years. And it became sort of, there were two books that I really used. One was this book by Ron Cobb and the other one was Color, sorry, the other one was um, Sentinel by Sid Mead. And Sid Mead, of course, was going to do the designs for Tron. Mm, Right. right, And then uh, much of the designs for Blade Runner. And there was sort of going to be, Mead was going to take over as being the the designer of the century. now, I didn't want to interrupt you before, but the, I, I found some trivia about this movie that I never knew before uh, on uh, Tumblr. Uh, they're talking about they're talking about that scene where, you know, uh, the, the alien bursts out of um, right. his chest. And I think the, the first response I got to it was um, a feminist kind of like, oh, that's the most horrific thing a man can imagine is another being coming out of you. <laughs> and and then someone farther down in the comments, someone had said. Actually, no, Dan O'Bannon had Crohn's disease. Yes. And he was actually describing what it felt like to have an attack of Crohn's disease. And that's what propelled that scene. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. And, of course, then I checked it. It's true. It's it's actually what what actually killed him. That's what he died. killed him eventually. Yeah. Yeah. But I I think you're really right, Mark. I think there's a – I think there is a quality to when we say there's a visceral quality to a film, it's like there's yeah. a good reason for it. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, speaking of uh, of trivia, I would be remiss in discussing uh, Alien, especially the design of Alien, without mentioning that my brother-in-law Brian Weivel actually is responsible for a little bit of the graphics in that movie. Oh, cool! Yeah, oh. just a, a little bit. He did a, a bit which makes the status of the computer orbit logistics clear to the viewer. Right. Oh, no kidding. And he's, I believe he's in the credits yeah, and, uh, and you can clearly see his work. Yeah. Those, oh, and those are really early 3D images, right? I mean, those yeah. are it's early imaging, which you see some of, you can see the sort of the, it's interesting if you look at the Star Wars movies between 77 and 82 or 83, I guess it is. And you can see that the rapid growth of computer modeling and imaging in that time. Uh, but that's fascinating. Wonderful. That's tremendous. We'll have to put a, a link up in the website to, uh, uh, to his, his work. Absolutely. Oh yeah. So I mean, yeah. Yeah. Now, unfortunately we're going to have to wrap things up, but a fascinating discussion, completely a unique perspective on, on alien that I certainly hadn't uh, thought of before. Any final thoughts then on, on the movie? I think what alien did was it pointed the way towards a world of design where things actually had to function and work instead of be 
a sort of imaginary, either utopian or dystopian. And so I think it's pointed us towards, if you're looking at an airlock now, the likelihood is it's one of Ron Cobb's airlocks. It's, the drawers may close horizontally or they may close diagonally, but basically there's a, there's a language to the way things work and things do work. That is, they are working environments. I think that's part of what makes the politics believable is that they're not walking around on a set which looks like Star Trek. Because for me, Star Trek is, every time I look at a Star Trek set, I think it's a fable. I, I know where I'm looking at a fable and I'm not really that interested because the fable is probably going to be pretty tedious and I'm going to get the point within 20 minutes and they're going to go on for another 20 minutes. And so that's your opinion of Star Trek. Okay. Well, thanks for your time. Uh, we'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so much for his credibility. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to hurt your baby. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. You're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> it's kind of true though. <laughs> but I think what it is, is it points the way to, a complex future, which is workable, but also treacherous. And uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, horrible too, though. I mean, I just think the fact that a future and a lot of futures that we see imagined actually do imagine that corporate power does take over. That's the trajectory we're on. That's not necessarily the trajectory we have to, we have to live, though. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. <laughs> well, I've said, I, I keep saying this to every guest and I mean it with oh, every guest. Sure. We'll have to have you on again because there's so much more to talk about. <laughs> for sure. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Joe, I'm really enjoying this. This has been fun, but I don't want to do this podcast anymore. You're talking about stopping the podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I do want to take August off. I just had a, like a heart attack, Mark. I was just trying to get that rise out of you. <laughs> so yeah, I think we should take August off. I think we should end end of July and come back after Labor Day. I think that's a terrific idea. Why don't we do a special episode to finish the whole thing off? A very special episode? A very special episode, yes. And we're going to launch your book, right? Yes. We're going to launch my book, Adventures in the Radio Trade, with a special live edition of Recreative. That sounds perfect. So we'll do that on the 30th. Sunday the 30th will be a special live edition of Recreative, after which we'll take August off. And then we'll be back on... After Labor Day. After Labor Day. I'll take my white pants off at that point. Your white pants. <laughs> right, because you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day. Do I look like someone who pays any attention to that kind of... Do I look like someone who has white pants? <laughs>